This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, best bits from Monday, December the 19th. And today was the day that we got in, well, something of an end of year tradition to invite the executive vice chairman and CEO of Dubai Duty Free, Colin McLaughlin, into the studio uh, to talk about the year that was, look ahead to the year that will be as well. Uh, Colin always comes armed with numbers and he delivered those numbers, some impressive numbers over the course of the World Cup final throughout the World Cup and uh, and throughout 2022. We're also joined by Tatiana Vela, who is the MD, the Managing Director of Sterling Hospitality. They're a boutique consultancy, hospitality consultancy, uh, based in Ras Al-Khaimah. Work closely with RACTDA and other entities to help promote and develop hotel concepts across Ras Al-Khaimah. Uh, Tatiana gave us some insight into... Uh, the investment that has poured into hotels and hospitality in Ras al throughout this year and looked ahead to yet more investment in the years to come. Michael Groninger also joined us, the CEO of Chainalysis, uh, to talk about all things FTX, the collapse of FTX. Is that going to have a knock-on effect with other cryptos and other blockchain uh, systems uh, here in the region and further afield? Uh, Michael gave us his thoughts on that. But of course... There were a couple of stories that were dominating the news agenda. Uh, The release of Avatar over the weekend, well, the new Avatar, that is, the one that's underwater or has got something to do with water, um, that didn't go as down as well as expected. Predictions, it fell short of predictions. Um, We were trying to surmise as to why that might be the case. One of the reasons might be in the fact that, well, the other news story that was dominating was all things football. Yep, the Football World Cup came to a conclusion uh, over in Doha. Dramatic game after a dramatic tournament and no big surprise, it was one of the big talking points of the business breakfast. their title Lionel Messi has won the World Cup How big was it last night where uh, you were? Uh, it was big we were down at DIFC Fan Park which uh, Dubai One Three 3.8 has been sponsoring throughout the course uh, of the World Cup it was rammed busiest I've seen it down there um, and as was everywhere I was down in Abu Dhabi for the weekend I was working at the Mabadla World Tennis Championships so then finished the final there in Abu Dhabi then hot-footed up the road to uh, DIFC the queues of traffic trying to get into Emirates Golf Club as I passed there the tr- queues of traffic trying to get into Media City the queues of traffic trying to get into in and around areas around Emirates Towers and various hotels I mean, it was, it's just, it, it sums up what the World Cup is. It's one of those events, especially a final, and especially when you've got two teams like Argentina and France in that final, it just brings everybody out. You don't have to be a football fan. You don't have to be a sports fan. You just have to be a fan of current affairs, of, 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 of news, of, of, of just events, of just, it's, it's, it's unique in that sense that it brings everybody together. Did last night. Extraordinary, strange atmosphere. Great atmosphere before the game. Then for about 75 minutes of the game, perplexion as to why there was only one team on the football field. Has anyone told France that they were actually playing in a World Cup final? Because Argentina completely dominated the first 75 minutes of the game. They were 2-0 up and cruising to victory, weren't they? 
utterly. I mean, and, it, and you couldn't, it couldn't have been more one-sided. I mean, France were abysmal in that first 75. Argentina were brilliant, but France just didn't turn up. There's all sorts of rumours doing the rounds that there's been, a, there's been a bug. The Middle East res- respiratory um, uh, condition, as it's being reported. MERS. MERS, is that what they call it, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so they'd be, they um, were saying that that has been rife uh, in Doha and that, that, that France might have might have picked up, up a few cases, but obviously that wasn't talked about. And then, yeah, 90 seconds, well, 1 minute 37 seconds of brilliance. Not brilliance. First bit was a mistake from Argentina, steps up Mbappe, and then a moment of brilliance from Mbappe, and things were just turned on the head. And that was basically the order of the day. We had three guys on our commentary team yesterday, myself, Chris Brown, and the former uh, Chelsea and Nigeria star, uh, John Obi Mikel. Um... And at periods of the, the end of that game, and pretty much throughout the whole of the, the, uh, the extra time, there were just long periods of silence on the radio. And that's not because we're rubbish broadcast. Well, that is because we're rubbish broadcasters. But it was just because you were speechless about what was going on. You couldn't... I mean, Dean, you, I'm sure you watched it. I'm sure all of you, everyone in the studio watched it. But you couldn't have scripted that one. The greatest football match of all time is being dubbed. Mm. And you, you, you'd, you'd struggle to argue against that. So he went to extra time, and then there was more drama then. Finished 1-1, yeah. and then penalty shootout. And pens come with their own drama, don't they? They do. Yeah. Um, and, and Argentina victorious. But what was... What, I mean, the atmosphere in the stadium, even though France is what a six-hour flight from Doha and Buenos Aires is a 16-hour flight from Doha. The stadium was, what, 85% Argentina? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, Same at the fan park? Uh, no, I'd say 50-50 at the fan park. Okay. Uh, the French were out in force, that's for sure. Um, there wasn't much sitting down going on, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, stools were, 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 were cast aside. As, just nerves. You just saw the nerves. And there was the, it, was the, it was the swings of the roundabouts. It was the pendulum swing of nerves. You know, that... The nerves or the disappointment of the French at the beginning, then the elation of the French towards the end of full time, the confusion of the Argentine fans going, what just happened in that last 90 seconds? Then into the harem and scarum extra time. And again, that pendulum swinging left, right and centre. It was just an extraordinary, um, extraordinary sporting event. Um, a dry, yeah, as you say, I mean, the debates will continue, won't they, about greatest football game of all time or not, but it's well and truly up there. And, and it also justifies, in many ways, the reasons FIFA's reasoning and much questions reasoning for hosting a World Cup in the Middle East for the first time. Doha played an absolute blinder uh, last night. Brilliant setting, brilliant game, more goals than any other tournament in the history of FIFA World Cup. Tom's got a sore voice. We've been having the discussion this morning, and we will continue to on the business breakfast because the business breakfast, um, about whether or not you get the ROI, the return on investment for the World Cup. Well, I'm looking at a Bloomberg report. Uh, the headline is this. World Cup win could be an economic boon for Argentina. They say football world champions tend to enjoy an extra 0.25 percentage points of economic growth in the two quarters following the tournament, according to a recent paper by Mars, Marco Mello at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. That's mainly the result of a rise in exports because the winner enjoys greater international visibility is what's 
Dr. Mello has told Bloomberg and reported in this paper. Brazil's foreign sales after it won the 2002 World Cup showed an outsized jump, according to his research, studying export data. Suddenly you just want... Argentinian merch. There might be a bit of contract work in Buenos Aires over the next couple of weeks. I think a, a few of the lampposts might need seeing to at the moment. <laughs> I mean, which prompts? I mean, what what prompts a football? What is it about football fans that want to climb lampposts to celebrate? There are other ways to celebrate. Surely you can you can take an elevated ground some, somehow or other. The extraordinary scenes from Buenos Aires last <laughs> night with not just one but multiple football fans having shimmied up lampposts. To unfurl flags, etc. Passion. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we're talking about the business of making a very expensive movie. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forrest, boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. Avatar Way of the Water came out this weekend globally and here in the UAE. The highest grossing movie of all time, Avatar 2019, its predecessor, but 13 years later, not such a success at the box office. Looks like the much-hyped Avatar way of the water is so far clocking in below box office expectations. Here's what we know. First of all, Disney, which now owns the Avatar franchise, having bought Fox uh, a couple of years ago. They've cut their forecast for Avatar's opening weekend in the US and Canada, saying it was likely to garner between 130 and 150 million dollars domestically, below an initial forecast of 150 million dollars. Other data that we have, Deadline, which is an industry magazine reporting that the film had come in at the lower end of that range with a $135 million purse for its opening North American weekend. Box office pro analyst Sean Robbins had predicted as much as $190 million. So it's still done okay, but okay isn't good enough for Avatar. It's, for example, it's well below Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which took $180 million earlier this year. So, not a flop, but certainly not a box office success. We've been getting some more insight on this by Dubai-based media expert Kareem Sarkis. He is with Strategy and the consultancy in their entertainment and media division. Been speaking to our producer over the weekend, Mohammed Suleiman, and he asked him very simply, how does the opening of the new Avatar movie compare with other blockbusters this year, such as Top Gun Maverick? In terms of the opening of Avatar, The Way of Water, or Avatar 2, it's quite positive. It's the third biggest international opening in pandemic times. I think in the US it's the fifth biggest weekend opening, but it's expected to hold on to the top spot or a very good performing position for quite some time, just because it's a quite a big blockbuster movie that's quite well known and people sort of know to expect something impressive. And the reviews have also been good. Compared to the biggest movie of the year, Top Gun Maverick, uh, the opening of Avatar is way ahead in terms of its opening weekend. It's also beaten uh, Jurassic World, uh, so it's looking good. Although uh, how far it will get and whether it will surpass uh, Top Gun's uh, global one, nearly 1.5 billion in revenue is yet to be seen. The new Avatar movie has a 78% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which again is good, 
but not great. One of the things that's significant is how are people watching Avatar? Indeed. Big screen or very big screen? Avatar, of course, benefits from the fact that it's a movie that really is made to be seen in the cinema. More than 60% of its revenues come from IMAX and large format screens, which is higher than the average for a movie. And of course, that's part of the intent behind the way the movie is shot and formatted and, and pitched and also what um, consumers would like to experience at the cinema. One thing we have seen as a result of COVID and the fact that a lot more movies are now avo- available to stream at home is that now uh, the when people want choose to go to the cinema, they want to go see something that's quite spectacular, quite impressive, and Avatar certainly plays into that. Brandy, you were looking at the change in the number of IMAX screens around the world since the first one came out in 2009, and now. What are the stats? 2009, there was 300 IMAX screens. Today, 4,000. And they are double your money from a normal screen, aren't they? So that will boost box office revenue. What's the break-even number, they reckon? Two billion is what James Cameron has put on it. Right. Long way to go. But then Avatar was a slow burner, so it might happen. Uh, Very quickly, we asked him more broadly, let's look back at the film industry in 2022 and how the post-COVID recovery is going. 2022 for cinema continues to see a good recovery. Uh, There's been about 20% increase compared to 2021. However, we are still somewhere between 30 to 40% lower than 2019, depending on what markets you're looking at and and how you're measuring. There's been several factors that played into this. Uh, One, for one, there are many fewer movies uh, this year available. So in the summer season, there were 50% less releases because of production delays uh, during COVID. Uh, China continues to be under a big lockdown, and it, it's of course, has always been a big part of the global box office. And there's also been the exchange rate on the dollar in terms of uh, counting international revenues. So those have hampered growth. We continue to see a positive trajectory, though, uh, but it's not yet clear whether the global revenues will surpass uh, pre-COVID, uh, pre-pandemic levels. Although it's, it's looking better than people predicted earlier, I have to say. One bright spark in the whole cinema recovery aspect is Saudi Arabia, which continues to surpass all expectations. It's uh, actually been growing throughout the pandemic uh, because of the continued opening and addition of screens across the country. And it uh, is on track to remain the fastest growing cinema market in the world. Very quickly, can we get his outlook for 2023? You can. 2023 is looking positive. Uh, Growth forecasts are between 10 to 15 percent. It's really underpinned by a few things. One uh, is the fact that there will be a lot more movies uh, available, which will help. These movies will also be big blockbuster type movies because studios uh, now think that's what it takes to uh, bring people into the cinema. This is a trend that was already uh, on its well on its way before COVID, and COVID has just accentuated it. And so studios are reluctant to take risks on smaller movies. They just want to go all out in terms of cinema releases. That's one. Uh, another big factor shaping cinema in 2023 is the fact that the global streamers who were out on a growth uh, and subscriber competition uh, before uh, the dynamics of the markets have shifted and now they're being asked to show profitability or at least a path towards profitability and so we expect the investment in content by those streamers to stabilize on the one hand and also you've already seen those like Disney and uh, Discovery Warner Brothers who, who uh, previously had deprioritized cinema or uh, launched movies onto streaming before cinema or at the same time or very close to the uh, theatrical release now saying they're going to prioritize the theatrical window because they don't want to leave any money on the table 
So all in all, a positive outlook in 2023. Kareem Sarkis of Strategy and speaking to our producer, Mohamed Suleiman. And those notes for 2023 will be music to the ears of the bosses of Roxy and Vox and other cinema chains here. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Talking cryptos this morning, the fallout from FTX, the exchange continues. Here's the lead story on CNBC this morning. The FTX disaster has set back crypto by years. Let's get the views of one expert. Michael Groninger is the CEO of Chainalysis. He joins us live now from the United States. Michael, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. You have a different theory, this. You say the FTX collapse is an FTX problem, not a wider crypto problem. Can you just explain your thesis on this to us? Yeah, definitely. So we've seen fraud in a lot of businesses over the years, and we will see it again. It's not something that's tied to crypto. It's not something that's tied to one one like like type of business. We've seen it in biotech, we've seen it in electric cars, we've basically seen it everywhere over the years. This is an example of a business that went rogue, a founder then went, went rogue, and basically uh, most likely took, took funds from customers and used them to, to leverage a, a trading scheme. So uh, first of all, I think it's important to say that, and that hurt a lot of consumers, it hurt a lot of retail uh, customers, and it hurt a lot of companies uh, that thought like this happened. And yet, in the, in the minds of the general public, the investors in crypto, it's not a good look, isn't it? I mean, there must be some fallout for the wider crypto world, do you not think? So what happened, so one of the things that's really great about crypto is the level of transparency that's there. And we, Chainalysis, we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and have a lot of people working at looking at all of things that happens on the blockchain. When we look at that and look at this year, we can also see realized losses. And what is that? So realized losses are like when people exit an, a position in the crypto space at a loss. So if you put in, you buy crypto at $60 or $60,000 a Bitcoin and you sell them at 40000 for example, then you realize the loss. So what, we, what happened over this year were that there's been certain events we saw First of all, uh, Terra Luna that, uh, and the stablecoin tied to that, UST, that got depegged. That cost, in terms of realized losses, uh, investors around $20 billion. Then shortly after that, and led by basically uh, that event, we saw Celsius and Three Arrows, and the realized losses in that event were on the order of $30 billion. Now, when we look at, um, at FTX and what happened right now, it looks like a shockwave bringing out because this is less than $10 billion. It's around $9 billion that investors have lost tied to the FTX or realized losses here. So there's still a lot of belief in crypto and people haven't sold their crypto uh, in, in the same extent as they did this spring. Okay, and it's interesting, and you, you, and you say, and you alluded to it there, you don't think the collapse of FTX is the worst thing that's happened to crypto this year. We were up at $68,000, weren't we, towards the beginning of the year, and, and now we're down at about $16,000 for Bitcoin, uh, the, the most actively traded uh, cryptocurrency. So what's your simple explanation, or to use that word again, thesis, on why we've gone from $68,000 for Bitcoin to just sixteen thousand one six? So I think the majority of the explanation lies in increasing interest rates. Uh, we know that from, from all the tech stocks out there, we see examples of companies that's down 60, 70, 80, 90% uh, over a year. 
and Bitcoin is actually performing relatively well compared to some of those companies. That said, it's like it's basically basically driven by interest rates that I see for the majority part of it. But at the same time, we also saw that the crypto industry got highly leveraged. And when you see leveraged trading uh, and a market that that like take take uh, some contractions because of of uh, rising raising interest rates, then you will see fallouts. And some of the the drop in price is of course due to FTX, due to three arrows, and due to Celsius and uh, and Terra Luna. So so we have like a combination of that. But I would say the majority of this has been driven by interest rates. We've only got a couple of minutes left, Michael. I appreciate your time this morning. From an international perspective, where does the UAE fit into all this? Because FTX had a, a license in Dubai from the Digital Assets Regulatory Authority or Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority. Binance, we know, is in some senses based in Abu Dhabi, also here in the UAE. From an international perspective, where does the UAE fit into all of this? So what happens right now and happened over the last couple of, of, of years, basically, has been an increasing focus from regulators internationally. We've seen it from, from the Financial Stability Board. We've seen it from the, the collaboration of security uh, commissions all over the world. We've seen all of them working together in terms of creating global regulations on crypto. And I think what will happen now is that this, this is a call to action in terms of ensuring that there's reasonable consumer protections in place in every jurisdiction, not just as it is today in New York and in Japan. What does it mean for your business, Chainalysis? Simply, I would describe it as a blockchain analysis firm based in the United States. You founded it almost 10 years ago. What does it mean for for your business? How's 2022 been for you? Good, bad or indifferent quickly? 2022 have been an amazing year for Chainalysis. And I would say that the fact that we have shown time over time again that transparency in the blockchain is kind of the key to the solution and not a, a part of the problem. And I think that's been, been, been one of the reasons why we've had such tailwinds this year. Crystal ball polishing time. We're almost at the end of the year. 2023, what's going to be the big story? 30 seconds, Michael. 30 seconds for that. I would say tokenization of real-world assets is something that you will hear more and more. We've seen the biggest tokenization of assets in terms of stablecoins. That's been huge, and we'll see more of that next year. Michael, really appreciate your time joining us very late where you are in the United States, early here in the UAE. Michael Gruninger is the CEO and co-founder of Chainalysis. It's a research firm based in the United States. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's turn our attention now to all things hospitality. We've been just been speaking to Ian Ohan there of Crush Brands. Uh, he's been bringing us uh, all the latest of what's happening with Crush. We're now going to turn our attention to the north heading up to Ras Al Khaimah where we can catch up uh, with Sterling Hospitality. Sterling Hospitality Associates uh, have been involved with the uh, promotion, the development of uh, Ras Al Khaimah uh, Tourism and Hospitality for many years now. And the numbers are looking extraordinarily good as well. Global investment will bolster hospitality rooms in Ras Al Khaimah by 70% by 2026, according to the most recent Um, predictions and projections. Let's talk now to Tatiana Vela of Sterling Hospitality, who joins us live on the line, live on Microsoft Teams. Good morning to you, Tatiana. 
Good morning, Tom. How are you? Very well indeed. Thanks so much indeed for joining us as well. So obviously we've seen significant investment into hospitality in Ras al Khaimah, in the Northern Emirates, in recent years. Uh, this latest data that you have, though, uh, from your own research, but also from that from uh, Ras al Khaimah Tourism and Development Authority, is that that investment, and specifically global investment, will continue. Absolutely. We are looking at an extremely healthy pipeline in the Northern Emirates. Actually, as a matter of fact, it's only second to Dubai's pipeline for the nearest few years. And um, we are adding about 8,000 more rooms to the existing uh, to the existing portfolio of hotels in Ras al Khaimah, which will offer really a huge diversity of brands. And um, notably, uh, Ras al Khaimah has always been... Um, just a rather simple uh, sun and sand destination, but now we're bringing in lifestyle brands and luxury brands and over luxury brands. So uh, we are looking at increasing uh, the interest for all uh, traveler and tourism groups uh, in the Northern Emirates. And we're building more hotels actually than uh, Sharjah, Fujairah and Ajman together. In terms of the diversity of what's available as well, obviously Wynn Resort, their integrated resort, made a huge amount of headlines when the announcement came out there. Uh, but again, I suppose one thing that's key to think about here when it comes to Rasalkema is that it's not just about resorts such as that. Are we seeing a sort of development of unique hospitality up in Rasalkema to compare with other Emirates? Absolutely. You know, uh, Rak is uh, so much more than uh, just the sand and the sun and the beach. Um, and it's uh, very well known for its geological diversity. We have the mountains, etc. So we're really working on making Ras al as diverse a tourism offering as possible. And Duin is just one of the testaments to that, you know, because it's going to make things uh, a lot more interesting and uh, very different from uh, anything that's found anywhere else in the Emirates. In terms of the attractiveness for investment as well, specifically for foreign investors, uh, Tatiana. What, what, what is it that attracts the foreign investment into Russell Kamer at the moment, specifically when it comes to hospitality? Uh, it is really the uh, diversity of potential opportunities. Mm. Uh, you can be investing in a small restaurant as well as in a huge large-scale resort. You can be develop, uh, developing a master plan with residential and uh, many other types of real estate. And additionally, because the market is growing so fast, um, for example, in the first half of uh, 2022, the Iraq real estate market appreciated 45%. I mean, that's only six, seven, eight months we're talking about. So the uh, returns are also very fast and very healthy. Plus, uh, you know, Emirates is making it relatively easy, well, quite easy for investors by having an extremely flexible legal framework, legislative framework that's protective of an investor interest. Give so us, it is very welcoming. Give us an idea, if you can. I was mentioned there the sort of the, the, the fact that uh, you and all the team at Sterling have been very much invested into Ras Al Khaimah in recent years. Give us an idea of the sort of projects and portfolio work that you're working on, have been working on. Absolutely. Um, so past ten years alone, uh, we have worked on about thirty, if not more, projects in the Northern Emirate, uh, developing the new hotels, advising on the concepts and business plans for the new hotels. As well as we've participated in an opening of about 10 properties here, including um, the ones that the holding owns, but uh, other other investors' properties as well, uh, to help successfully transition hotel from the construction into the operating mode. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, frankly, it's about um, it's about um, 
1.25 billion USD um, hotel assets that we are helping asset manage. So it's quite quite a heavy involvement. With the projection for uh, investment, with the projection for projects that you know that are in the pipeline, how many new sort of hotel rooms will come online within the next four to five years? So before 2026 uh, is here, we are looking at about 8,000 new hotel rooms in Raselheima. And just for comparison, this really means more than doubling the uh, current uh, the current portfolio of hotels here. So it is extremely active and um, almost every week there is an announcement of another new hotel that's coming up. Obviously, you have your position as one of the leading boutique advisory institutions here in the region, obviously with strong connections in Ras al But is it just Ras al that we're seeing this boom in at the moment or are you also consulting on projects across the whole of the GCC? Oh, absolutely. We're involved across the entire region. And um, of course, the Saudi is the talk of the market right now as well. Saudi is actually leading uh, the pipeline of hotel rooms in the region because um, quite quite honestly, the amount of things that are happening there is uh, extremely, extremely healthy. So we are involved there as well with uh, a lot of advisory work. And um, also Oman has really woken up lately and uh, is presenting some maybe smaller scale, but very, very interesting and diverse opportunities as well for the investors. And uh, looks like it will be also the next big thing in the nearest few years. Tatiana, thank you so much indeed for your time this morning. Our thanks for joining us live on the line and live on Microsoft Teams. Tatiana Vela is the Managing Director of Sterling Hospitality, joining us live uh, on the Business Breakfast this morning to talk about that global investment and that will bolster hospitality rooms in Ras al by 70% by 2026. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we are looking at the economics of the Football World Cup this morning, uh, looking at the uh, the ROI and the financial implications. And we've got one winner already in the studio this morning, Cole McLaughlin, Executive Vice Chairman and CEO of Dubai Duty Free, who's seen a few fans go past the tills. Colm, good morning. Thanks so good, much for joining good us. Good morning, everybody. Happy to be here. It's lovely to have you in the studio, and you've already got us the numbers on what you saw at Duty Free last night. Yes, it was good last night. Um, we're talking about the football, and in the Irish village we had put a huge screen in our tennis stadium, and we had 2,000 people attending the match in the stadium last night. And I'm happy to say that whilst they were there, they spent 350,000 dirhams. Happy days. Happy days. And, you know, it was a, a cheap match for those people, but it was interesting. And we've had, a, we've had a, the stadium in operation right through the football. And on several evenings, we had 1,000 people. We had 300 people. But at the final, we had 2,000 people last evening. What has it meant for... Dubai Duty Free itself in terms of um, the fans going through the airport and the spend? It has been very, very good for us. And a lot of people, there have been 60 flights every day going from Dubai to Doha. And um, it has reflected on our duty free and the business we've taken. And as a general rule, we're doing very, very well in the duty free this year. Um, we're almost, almost back to the 2019 level and we're going to end this year with sales of 6.2 billion dirhams and our biggest ever was 2019 when we had just over 7 billion. 
Let's put that in in context. When we're getting close to the the 2019 levels, the pre-pandemic levels, where are you percentage-wise, roughly? We are... We're, first of all, we're 80% <laughs> up on last year in our sales, and um, we're minus 14% in overall versus 2019 in our sales. Okay, so that puts you at about, goodness, um, about 86% of the, thank you, Richard. Of the 2019. And that's higher than flight recovery. For flight recovery is in the high 70s, isn't it? It seems to be, yes, yeah. Um, our total, our biggest year ever was 2019, and we'd sales of just over 7 billion dirhams. We're going to finish this year in a week's time with sales of 6.2 billion dirhams. So why do you think that you're outpacing the recovery of the number of passengers? Are people spending more? Is there a change in the spend per passenger? There is a change in spend. We had a, a, an average spend in 2018 and 19 of about $39 per person. And um, during the pandemic, because people hadn't traveled so much, that went up to about $50. And now it's running permanently at $46, $47. So it has been very good from that point of view. What's your theory there on, on why people are spending more? I beg your pardon? What's your theory on why people are spending well, more? Well, we think it's because they haven't been traveling so much. And um, so on one visit, they're spending the same amount as one and a half visits previously. And, of course, we're marketing the thing as well as we can and doing various promotions and stuff like that. At the same time, though, inflation is making ticket prices expensive is is there a worry that that could eat into how much disposal cash people have to spend in duty free well there's a few things but there's always something crops up you know the fact that that the euro has suffered the fact that the pound sterling has suffered means that passengers from europe particularly the prices they pay when they travel apart from airline tickets the prices are more on products so that has an effect but as the traffic keeps on growing um, it's positive for us. The, um, you know, in 2019, there were 89 million people through Dubai Airport. That dropped to just over 20 million in 2020. And then it has been gathering pace since. And this year, we're going to finish with about 67 million passengers through the airport. The forecast for next year is 79 million passengers. And, um, you know, we look at that and each passenger, we, we, we write down $45, $50 on our pieces of paper for them. How do you cope with that? What does that projection mean for you operations and staff-wise? Well, you know, the COVID had a very big effect on our staff. In 2019, we had 6,000 staff. When COVID came, we had to reduce that and put people on furlough and lay people off and so on like every other company in the place. And um, we had to reduce our staff to 2,800 people. I'm happy to say we made an in-house rule. We're calling back as many of our old staff as we can. And we have called back 2,000 of our old staff, or 2,500 at the moment. Um, and our staff figures are now up to 4,500. But we think during the next year that will go to five and a half thousand or perhaps even closer to six thousand. Let's look at how else duty-free is changing. I mean, it's your 39th 
birthday this week, tomorrow in fact. Uh, Mabrook, congratulations on the anniversary. And in that time, DDF has changed most recently from being sort of one vendor, you guys, to being multiple vendors, those individual shops. How far can that go? Well, the individual shops you see in the Dividers you Free, they're actually our shops, and we, we have made an agreement with the suppliers, and some of them like to have their own boutique, and that's fine. Um, but it's all the by duty free business and it's all the by duty free staff. And um, it's working well for us uh, since we started doing it and our suppliers are happy with it. And of course, our sales continue to grow. And, um, you know, we think uh, we think in another year's time, we'll be back to the 2019 level. And what will I've got one minute left with you, Cole? What will we see from you over the the next year in terms of new concessions, new restaurants, uh, changes to duty free? Well, we're always looking at new products, of course. But um, you know what we do is we extend the existing suppliers we have. And if you take, for example, Apple, our Apple and iPhone sales continue to increase, even. Even if new numbers come in, like I'm not techie at all, but I read about I-13 and I-14, but, you know, we'll have an I-16 that's probably going to hit the roof and do a lot of sales for us. And as I say, next year we expect to be back to the 2019 level. We expect to be back to about 6,000 staff. And um, and we're doing a lot of marketing apart from the Dubai Duty Free for Dubai. We're continuing to do our tennis. We're continuing to do horse racing overseas. And, um, you know, we already have Dokovic and Nadal signed up for our tennis tournament in February. So we're very positive as we look at everything. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on what is a big week for Dubai Duty Free. It's 39th anniversary tomorrow. Cole McLaughlin is the Executive Vice Chairman and CEO. We appreciate you coming into the studio. Thank you very much indeed. And thank, thank you to all the staff at Dubai Duty Free. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.